This is going to be an unusual message. If you're here as a guest, this is typically not what I do. I think this will be most unusual at the end at least. Um, We are finishing this morning. I'm going to finish uh, our series through Nehemiah. And uh, I just feel like we need to wrap it up. And uh, I'm not sure what the next series will be. I don't know at this moment, but uh, obviously I will let you know. The title to this message, I don't often mention titles, is Don't Forget to Remember. But that's just a partial title. We will complete that title at the end of this sermon. At the beginning of Nehemiah 8, estimates are that there were about 40,000 people that had congregated together at Jerusalem in order to hear Ezra the scribe read from the Hebrew Torah. Remember the word Torah, uh, also called the Pentateuch, also called the books of Moses, since Moses authored them. Uh, The Pentateuch, the Torah, consisted of the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. This was primarily an adult congregation because only those that were mature enough Uh, and able to understand the reading, were permitted to attend this service. Ezra stood on a large platform above the people where all the people could see him and hear him. He read for hours from the Torah, and the people stood as he read in honor of the Scriptures. Ezra read from the Pentateuch and then explained the text so the people could understand what he had read. Let's see what happened next, starting at Nehemiah 8 and verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not, notice, do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Meaning the people, as the Pentateuch, the Torah was being read, the people wept. Verse 10. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Verse 11. So the Levites quieted all the people saying, be still for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. Verse 12. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. Notice that Nehemiah and Ezra And those men, those Levite men that assisted them in teaching this congregation told the people not to mourn. The people had been mourning because the people were so grieved and saddened after hearing Ezra read from the Old Testament scriptures. Scripture is sometimes convicting. And these people were feeling that conviction and were saddened. So these men instructed the people to wipe the tears from their eyes and instead of sadness, rejoice, celebrate, and commemorate the ancient feast of the tabernacles. That particular feast is mentioned in verses 14 through 18. And it was a unique observance. Notice verse 13. 
Now on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe. Why were the people there? In order to understand the words of the law. Once more, this is the Mosaic law found in the Pentateuch or Torah. Notice that throughout this chapter, the emphasis has been on understanding reading scripture and then understanding the scripture that is read verse 14 and they found written in the law the torah which the lord had commanded by moses that the children of israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month that's describing that ancient jewish feast tabernacles verse 15 and that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in jerusalem saying go out to the mountain and bring olive branches branches of oil trees myrtle branches palm branches and branches of leafy trees to make booths as it is written then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths each one on the roof of his house some of these uh these booths were actually situated or constructed on people's roofs. Roofs at that time in the Middle East were primarily flat. Or in their courtyards, or the courts of the house of God, or, and in the open square of the water gate, and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the whole congregation of those who had returned from captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. So it had been some time uh, since the, the, the Israelites had celebrated this feast. And there was very great sadness, gladness. Verse 18, also day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. Again, reading more scripture. And they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. Now, Nehemiah instructed the people to observe a religious feast that hadn't been observed for some time. That feast was called the Feast of Tabernacles. Notice on the note sheet, altogether, there were seven Jewish religious feasts. There is Passover. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Firstfruits, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, and the Day of Atonement, also called Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the holiest day in the Jewish calendar. And then five days after Yom Kippur was the Feast of Tabernacles. In order to observe the Feast of Tabernacles, the people were instructed to put together some booths. Those booths were simple lean-to-like structures and were made from branches from different trees and leaves from those trees. Uh, the people were then commanded, and these are those example of those booths, small, notice, uh, but this is what the people were instructed to construct. The people were then commanded to leave their homes and actually stay in those lean-to structures for seven consecutive days. That was the observance. Construct one of these booths and then live in that booth for seven days. Doesn't sound like fun to me. I don't even appreciate camping, so I'm not into that. But God had a definite reason for instructing the people to stay in those booths for seven days. The rationale behind that is that although there are some things we should forget, there are other things we should never forget. There are some things we should forget there are other things we should never forget. It has been said, those who do not remember the past are condemned 
to repeat it. Remembering was the primary reason God instituted this Feast of Tabernacles. God wanted his people to remember. God wanted his people never to forget the incredible experiences that their Hebrew ancestors endured during the wilderness wanderings. Now, this is probably unfamiliar for some of us, so let me review some historical background to better understand the Feast of Tabernacles. The ancient Jewish people had been enslaved in Egypt for more than four centuries. God had used Moses, the great emancipator, Moses to bring them out of that bondage and bring them to the land God had promised them. That land was called Canaan. After some time, uh, the people journeyed to the edge of Canaan to a location called Kadesh Barnea. I understand that we don't know the exact location of where Kadesh Barnea is, but this is the route. Notice in orange uh, the route starting at Egypt and then um, going all the way to Kadesh Barnea. Um, God instructed those Israelites once after arriving at Kadesh Barnea to invade Canaan and actually possess the land he had promised them. The people were hesitant, though, and decided to first send 12 men into Canaan to do some reconnaissance. Those men explored the Canaanite region and found that land itself had tremendous agricultural potential. It, is, it was said to be a land full of milk and honey. That's the reason modern Israel's Ministry of Tourism has a logo showing a picture of two ancient Israelite men carrying a massive cluster of grapes. The land was incredibly fertile and, and productive. But during that uh, reconnaissance mission, those 12 spies also learned that Canaan was inhabited with oversized people. Some of those Canaanites were gigantic men. Because of those giants, 10 of the 12 spies were convinced it would be suicidal to attempt to overthrow those nations that occupied the land that God had promised them. Those 10 spies had contracted the infamous giant grasshopper complex. This was that giant grasshopper complex. Those 10 spies told those nervous Israelites at Kadesh Barnea, it is impossible for us to go into Canaan. These people there are giants, and in comparison to them, we're just grasshoppers, meaning that if we even attempt to go in there, there's a realistic chance we're going to be annihilated. That was the message from Ten of those 12 spies. It was pessimistic. It, it was a defeatist. It was, we can't do this. There were two spies, though, of that 12 that, that were still optimistic about the situation. And those men were Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb. Our middle son, we named Joshua. He named his son Caleb. Good men. And those courageous men encouraged the people to trust God, to be obedient to his instructions and invade Canaan as he had told them to. The problem was that the Israelites as a nation listened to those 10 spies that brought them that discouraging, pessimistic report and completely ignored that positive, confident recommendation from Joshua and Caleb. The Israelites were upset because of the situation. The people wanted to go into the land, 
But the ten spies were telling them, it's impossible to go in to the land. And so the people were upset. So upset, the people wanted to actually stone Moses, his brother Aaron, and stone those spies, Joshua and Caleb. And then choose someone else to actually negotiate a return to Egypt. Imagine that. This proves that what is right is not always popular. And what is popular is not always right. God was so angered at that reaction from the people to his instructions that he forced this entire nation of two to three million Israelites to wander around in wilderness areas for four decades. Four discouraging decades. The people wandered until the older generation, the entire older generation of people that had left Egypt had died off. Those Israelites were to wander in the wilderness areas until all of them, age 20 and older, had died. Joshua and Caleb were the, the only exceptions from that older generation, and those men were permitted to enter Canaan. That happened because God was upset at the older generation for its refusal to enter the land, and so God only wanted the emerging generation of Israelites to be permitted into Canaan. And that's what happened. This is interesting. During those four decades of wilderness wanderings, the people learned to live in these booths or lean-to structures. Throughout that entire time, this is what people lived in. As they wandered, they would set up these booths and then, you know, inhabit those booths. It, that was the connection to the Feast of Tabernacles. This feast helped the Jewish people in setting up these booths, staying there for seven days, helped the people remember the experiences of their ancient ancestors. And God wanted the people to remember two basic things. One, this particular feast helped the people remember that there are consequences to sin. This feast, setting up these booths, Staying there for seven consecutive days. Help the people remember there are consequences to sin. Through the means of participating in that annual feast, the people were reminded that their ancient ancestors had been disobedient to God and as a result had been forced to wander in the wilderness and exist in these booths. The problem is that some of our contemporaries want us to believe that God is some sort of a sentimental old man that sits around on a cloud and smiles and no matter what we do and or don't do. We need to understand that God is still God. And because of his intrinsic holiness, he has still committed himself to the identification and punishment of sin. Something some denominations don't understand. The United Methodist denomination is one of the oldest and largest mainline denominations in this nation is experiencing a schism, a division. Churches are just evacuating the denomination, forming another denomination, more conservative, called a global Methodist church. And it's all because of the the position on, or the perspective on, the LGBTQ matter. And the progressives in the denomination that basically um, 
basically dominate the denomination, uh, believe that same-sex marriage is permissible and acceptable to God. And the more traditional and conservative um, Methodists will know it's not. And so there's been this exodus, and it's ongoing, uh, forming another denomination. Um, but some people don't understand God punishes sin. And not everything is okay. This is the age of the market-driven, consumer-driven church. And since the goal in marketing is to make both the producer and the consumer satisfied, that means anything that happens in a service that could cause the consumer to be less than satisfied must be omitted. It must be omitted. Uh, these churches are casual times 10. In these congregations, preaching doesn't sound like preaching. It's more conversational and positive and short. Um, a foreign concept here, just so you know. Sermons resemble a TED talk more than a sermon. It's supposed to be the same gospel, but with less guilt. It is more of a soft sell. Sin isn't mentioned. And the message isn't about being saved from hell, but being saved from meaningless and unhappiness. The emphasis is on subjects such as leaving a legacy, finding your destiny, and your best life now. This consumer-based Christianity that is popular, presents God as someone that loves and cares and is gracious and good and we agree but then that movement totally ignores the fact that that same deity is also righteous separate from sin full of holiness and he is just and because of this other dimension God is obligated to punish sins Divine punishment falls into two general classifications. There's only enough time in this message to mention them, just mention them. Uh, and in another message, I promise we will expand on them. First, there is what we call indirect punishment. Notice the definition. Indirect punishment is God permitting, permitting someone to suffer the inherent adverse consequences of his or her sinful actions. This is where God permits someone to suffer the inherent um, negative, adverse consequences of his or her sinful actions. You might have heard it said, sometimes God will give someone enough rope to hang themselves. This is found in uh, Romans 1, comments on this. We don't have time to uh, comment on that, but at another time we will. Someone that is as an example, someone that is promiscuous and then contracts an STD is suffering the inherent, adverse, negative consequences of his own immoral actions. In the U.S., one in five people have contracted a sexually transmitted disease. That's an example of indirect punishment. In the U.S., there are were almost 108,000 drug overdoses in 2021. And two-thirds of those were from fentanyl or another synthetic opioid. And those statistics exist because, yes, sin thrills and then sin kills. Yes, sin fascinates and then sin assassinates. Sometimes God permits someone to suffer the inherent 
uh, negative, adverse, and sometimes catastrophic consequences of his or her sin. Second, though, there is direct punishment. Direct punishment is God causing someone adverse consequences as a deliberate divine reaction to his or her sinful actions. See, indirect punishment is God permitting uh, someone to suffer consequences. Direct punishment is God causing someone adverse consequences as a deliberate divine reaction to someone's actions. These disobedient Israelites at Kadesh Barnea suffered direct punishment from God. That older generation of Hebrew people that had left Egypt and that had journeyed to Kadesh Barnea and then had refused to go on into Canaan, those people were recipients of direct divine punishment. God punished them for that stubbornness and defiant disobedience and forced those people to wander around throughout wilderness areas for four decades until all of them, that older generation that had left Egypt, all of them had died off except for Joshua and Caleb. So this ancient Feast of Tabernacles mentioned here required the people to build temporary booths Stay in those booths for seven consecutive days. And the reason in doing that was to remind them that their ancient ancestors had been forced to survive in those similar booths for four decades as a direct consequence of their disobedience and sin. Notice there's a second thing, though. Second, this particular feast helped the people to remember that God still provides for his own. This feast helped people to remember God still provides for his own. Throughout that time that the people wandered in the wilderness, God provided for them. God met their basic human needs. He fed them. He clothed them throughout that entire time period. No one missed a meal unless someone wanted to miss a meal. As an example, no one's shoes wore out for four, for four decades of wandering. God was faithful to provide for his people. And even though times have changed over the past 35 centuries, God hasn't changed. God is still the provider. Psalm 34, verse 10. The young lions lack and suffer hunger. Meaning there are times where lion cubs are hungry and unfed uh, because their mother is unavailable to feed them. But those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. God provides for his own. Psalm 37, 25, David said this, I have been young and now am old. That's me. I have been young and now am old. And in using that phrase, David has just described his entire existence on earth. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken. We are, in a spiritual sense, those of us that have received Christ, we are considered righteous. Um, and David said, I've not seen the right, righteous abandoned. God doesn't abandon his children, nor his descendants, meaning his spiritual descendants, that's us, nor his descendants begging for bread. I've never seen a scientific uh, data on this, but I have serious doubts that these people holding up signs, sitting at intersections, primarily homeless people, begging for money, I have serious doubts that those people are committed Christians. 
That just doesn't happen. Because God will not permit his descendants to be begging for bread. Philippians 4 verse 19. And my God shall supply all your need. Notice it reads needs, not greeds. God shall supply all your needs according to his riches. This promise to meet our needs is not according to someone else's riches, not even according to Elon Musk's riches. But our needs are met according to God's riches in glory by Christ Jesus. God provides for his own people. And this is one of the reasons uh, the people were instructed to, to set up these booths during this feast to remind them that their ancient ancestors were disobedient, forced to wander in the wilderness, but God still provided for them. And contrary to widespread historical revisionism, the founding of our nation is evidence of that provision. There were two groups of people that settled New England. Both groups consisted of committed Christians. Those groups were Puritans and pilgrims. Puritans and pilgrims. Those groups had much in common, but were not identical to one another. The Church of England was Britain's institutional church. The head of that church was the King of England. That was an unbiblical arrangement, as Scripture opposes the establishment of a state church, and uh, we should be appreciative that our forefathers and founders of this nation also opposed the establishment of a state church. The Puritans wanted to bring about a purification of the established church in England. That group wanted uh, a capable pastor to be assigned to each parish, one that wasn't required to wear clerical garb, one that wouldn't force the congregation to kneel during communion, and some other things that smacked of Catholicism. The Puritans wanted to reform the church from the inside. Another group of Puritans also felt uh, each congregation be a, should be a, autonomous and self-governing and free from the demands of a state-run church. But those Puritans felt that the Church of England was too stubborn and too resistant to change. So that group left the church. Those Puritans that left the church would be known as separatists because that group had separated themselves from the Church of England. And those separatists would, in time, be called pilgrims. All of them were Puritans, but these were the separatists that became pilgrims. King James I said he would force those separatists to conform to the Church of England, or else he would expel them from Britain. The separatists wouldn't accommodate that demand. And the separatists were forced to worship in secret in order to avoid arrest and imprisonment. And sometimes that wasn't successful. Some were arrested, some were imprisoned, some were executed. King James made conditions so difficult for them that a separatist congregation, remember these are Puritans, separatists, from a small village named Scrooby, England, moved to the Netherlands in 1609. That wasn't a good move, though, because as poor immigrants, the separatists had to spend long hours doing strenuous, menial labor for meager wages. In addition, there was a concern on the part of the parents that the children were becoming more Dutch than English. So these separatists brought, bought, purchased an old freighter named the Speedwell. 
A freighter was a ship designed to carry cargo in bulk quantities. This small congregation of English separatist Puritans boarded that freighter and journeyed to Southampton, England, and there joined a larger ship called the Mayflower. It was that congregation, that separatist congregation's pastor, John Robinson, that suggested to that congregation that his people immigrate to North America. So we're here in part this morning because of a pastor's suggestion. See what happens when people listen to the pastor? Both the Mayflower and the Speedwell started on that trip here to this continent, but the freighter started having trouble. The ship had sprung another serious leak, so both ships returned to port. The pilgrims were forced to sell the problem freighter, and all the passengers had to then crowd onto the Mayflower. There were 102 passengers, and in round numbers, about 30 crew members aboard the Mayflower, and... Um, the space where they were kept, confined space below deck, was extremely small. This is the Mayflower II. Uh, this is supposed to be a replica of the original Mayflower. Not all of those passengers were religious separatists. Some of them were secular, unregenerate people. Uh, some of them that the pilgrims called strangers uh, just wanted to, to go to this continent and in hopes of finding adventure and riches. Those separatist Puritans, now called pilgrims, were absolutely convinced God wanted to bring them to North America to practice the Christian religion free from the constraints of the Church of England. It was a treacherous journey across the Atlantic. At the midpoint of the trip, there was a terrible storm that cracked one of the huge wooden beams that supported the frame of the ship. It was so bad, so serious, the crew considered turning around and returning to England. But one of the passengers had brought, bought a large metal jack screw. Probably some of our men know what a jack screw is. He had purchased that jack screw in Holland, had brought it to help them in constructing homes in New England. And that giant iron screw helped raise the fractured beam back into place so the ship could continue. Because God provides for his own. The pilgrims left England on September 16, 1620, and then after some 3,219 miles, and after more than two months fighting the ocean's elements, that ship arrived off the coast of what is now Cape Cod, Massachusetts, on November 11, 1620. Just before disembarking that ship, 41 men, all of them were religious pilgrims, separatists, 41 men aboard that ship signed a document called the Mayflower Compact. It was our nation's original document of civil government. And the first time that free and equal men had engaged in a covenant to create together another society that would be founded on biblical principles. Part of that compact read, having undertaken for the glory of God an advancement of the Christian faith. Governor William Bradford, he became governor of the Plymouth Colony, he described the actual moment the pilgrims stepped off the Mayflower and stepped onto 
land. He said, being thus arrived in a good harbor and brought safe to land, they fell on their knees and blessed the God of heaven who had brought them over the vast and furious ocean and delivered them from all the perils and miseries thereof, again to set their feet on the firm and stable earth, their proper element. Notice the first act of those immigrants to New England was to in mass fall to their knees in thanksgiving to God. The fact that this nation actually exists and continues to exist is more than ample evidence that God provides. And because God does provide, that provision necessitates a grateful response from each one of us. The book of Luke contains three stories that illustrate three separate categories of people that relate to thankfulness. Notice the first of these categories is representative of those that are never thankful. Those people that are never thankful. Luke 12, starting at verse 16. Then he, Jesus, spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. Verse 17, And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? Verse 18, so he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store my crops and my goods. Verse 19, I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Notice in just three verses, this man used the word I a total of six times. Notice in just three verses, this man used the word my a total of five times. This man was completely self-absorbed. Verse 20, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. God said to this man, you're a fool. You are presumptuous. To think that you have many years left. You don't even have many hours left. You are going to die tonight. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? This foolish man's possessions uh, went to someone else after he died just as ours do. Because the things we possess now are only on loan to us from God until we evacuate this earth. And then those things go on to someone else. This account describes a rich fool that didn't think he owed God even a monicum of gratefulness because he didn't want to admit that God was the actual source of his riches. He was a self-made man. This man is considered a fool because he never understood the need to be grateful to someone outside of himself. The fact is that ingratitude and ungratefulness are just superficial symptoms of a more serious problem. And that problem is pride. Pride is the basic reason people are ungrateful. If someone isn't grateful, then on the inside, it could be subconscious. Still on the inside, if someone isn't grateful, he's probably feeling that it's not necessary for him to be grateful because he feels he deserves the benefits he has received. Gratefulness is demonstrated through humble people. 
Because someone that is humble understands that he deserves nothing good. And so even the slightest favor is for him a reason to say thank you. I still remember hearing Dave Ramsey um, from Ramsey Solutions, uh, the financial guru, Christian guru on finances. He, uh, he has a calling radio uh, syndicated radio program and, and callers call him and say, Dave, how are you? And every time he responds, better than I deserve. Dave, how are you? Better than I deserve. That is true of all of us. We deserve nothing good. So even the slightest favor or goodness uh, manifested toward us, extended toward us, is a reason for us to say thank you. The sad part is most people are probably ingrates, although none of them would actually admit to that. It's not that we are never grateful. Remember, even a broken clock is correct twice a day. It's not that we are never grateful because sometimes we are grateful. But that gratefulness needs to be more consistent than it is. Remember, what we consistently are is what we are. What we sometimes are is not what we are. What we are consistently is what we are. And if we're grateful consistently, then we are a grateful people. Notice the second classification of people that relate to gratefulness. And once more, these are all from Luke's gospel. Uh, those that are thankful in a hypocritical sense. Those that are thankful in a hypocritical sense. Luke 18, verse 9. Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, notice, and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other one a tax collector. Remember, the Pharisees were the religious elite, a sect of Jewish men, a strict sect of Jewish men, numbering around 6,000 at the time of Jesus. These men were experts in the Mosaic Law. These men were hypocritical. Uh, these men um, looked down at anyone else who was a non-Pharisee. Um, these were the uh, religious elite. And then the tax collector, he was considered a traitor because he was collecting tax monies for the Roman Empire from his own people, the Jewish people, and the Jewish people hated Rome. And so he was considered societal scum. He couldn't be trusted, his testimony in a court of law. So these are the contrast. Jesus addressed this particular parable to those that were self-righteous, those that trusted in themselves for their own righteousness. And in this parable, Jesus contrasted the prayers of a Pharisee and a tax collector. It's interesting that this Pharisee's prayer is recorded here, and his prayer was a prayer of thanksgiving on the surface. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Some translations read, uh, he stood alone and prayed. Uh, but the newer edition of the King James translation uh, reads as though it seems this Pharisee wasn't praying to God. He was actually just talking to himself. Notice he said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector over here. Verse 12, I fast twice a week. 
I give tithes of all that I possess. Now, this isn't the same as I'm grateful I was born here and not in Iran. I'm grateful to have received the education I have. I'm grateful God saved me from an addiction. No, this is something altogether different. This Pharisee was just boasting about himself. This Pharisee didn't have an ounce of actual gratefulness. In essence, he thanked himself under the pretense of being grateful to God. And that is a hypocritical and fraudulent form of gratitude. And we need to be careful about that. Number three, those that are sincere in being thankful. This is where we need to be. Those that are sincere in being thankful. Luke 17, starting at verse 11. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed, this is Jesus, passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers who stood afar off. Remember, lepers, confirmed lepers, uh, it was such a contagious disease, had to, uh, had to be expelled from the community and, and, and exist in leper colonies outside um, the limits of the village or town. And, uh, and, and if someone were to pass them, they had to stand back and, and scream out, unclean, unclean. Uh, And so Jesus is entering a village. He isn't there yet. And on the outskirts of that village, he finds ten lepers. In verse 13, and they lifted up their voice and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Verse 14, so he saw them. He said to them, go, show yourselves to the priest. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. That's interesting. He didn't heal them first and say, go show yourselves to the priest. He said, go show yourselves to the priest to confirm you're clean. And as they were going to see the priest, they were cleansed. That did require an element of faith on their part. Verse 15, and one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God. Verse 16, and fell down on his face at his feet. He fell down at the feet of Jesus, giving him thanks. Notice, and he was a Samaritan. This particular account describes ten men that had contracted this highly contagious and fatal disease called leprosy. It was incurable. Nine of them were Jewish men, and one of them was a Samaritan. Samaritans were the result of intermarriages between Gentiles and Jewish people. Because of that, Samaritans were ostracized. Both Gentiles and Jews hated Samaritans because racism has always been a societal problem. Notice Jesus healed all ten leprous men. But the Samaritan was the only one that returned to thank him. Those miserable nine men got what those men wanted which was to be healed from the disease that made them social outcast. The Samaritan, though, gave Jesus what he wanted, and that was to be glorified through giving him thanks after this man had been healed. I'm curious if that could be the same percentage of gratefulness and ungratefulness in our modern culture. Just 10% of us are actually grateful, and 90% of us aren't. If that isn't an exact percentage... It has to be close from personal experience. It has to be close. We have created a culture of offense and grievance, and we have forgotten to be grateful. 
The upside is that God is faithful to provide for us, but the downside is that the consistency of his blessings sometimes seems to dull our gratitude. We have all been given so much and so often that the result is we tend to take his goodness for granted. And sometimes we don't fully appreciate those blessings until we no longer have them. Most often until we lose those things, we take those blessings for granted. I'm going to use as an illustration something I've never done before. The longest illustrations I've ever used and I've preached thousands of times. But I think it helps us understand how often we take for granted God's blessings, His provisions for us. Yvette Garcia Biggerstaff has been on our prayer sheet for months. Most of us have noticed that her name is always there. Longer than anyone else. And that has been because I insist she remained there. Her parents are Ed and Zulema Garcia. I was privileged and honored to have been Ed, Zulema, and Yvette's pastor in California for a very long time. Barbara Farrar, our worship leader, was also close to Yvette as she was on her worship team. Um, and there's even more than a pastoral connection to the Garcias. There's a personal connection. More than two decades ago, Zulema and her friend and business partner, Virginia Siegel, who was another member of our congregation, another awesome woman, started a, a company, a business called On-Site Safety. That business has been very successful. It now exists in multiple states, in different cities. And Zulema, at the beginning, hired our youngest son. Um, he had no experience in the safety industry. He literally learned the trade from the ground up from all the opportunities Zulema and Virginia gave him. When I say safety inspector, think OSHA and all of that stuff, which he really doesn't like that much. But um, he, he's, uh, but anyway, uh, he has since then been a safety inspector and trainer. He trains all forms of safety um, on some of the largest multi-billion dollar construction projects on the West Coast, primarily in San Francisco, some in Hawaii. And uh, currently he is a safety inspector and trainer for Washoe County. He resides in Reno. He, he sent me a text last night. I asked him about his relationship with Zulema. And he said to me, quote, working, with, working for Zulema in Virginia shaped me into the man and person I am today. And so he feels indebted to the Garcias, and as his parents, so do we. Um, I need to add some context to this prayer request that has been on our prayer sheet for months. Yvette will be 33, 33 next month. She resides in Phoenix, Arizona. She is married to Tim. She's the mother to two daughters, Phoenix, age five, and Briar, just seven months. She is a registered nurse. She is employed at the same hospital where she is now a patient. She is just one semester away from graduating with a master's degree as a nurse practitioner. In 2020, at the beginning of the pandemic, she spent three months in New York City as a nurse caring for COVID patients. And I did not know that. Yvette is an amazing, 
amazing young woman. November 15, 2021, eight months pregnant, Yvette had a surgical procedure to remove a cyst. During that procedure, she aspirated, causing pneumonia, and her immune system was compromised. December 20, 2021, Yvette gave birth to Briar via a C-section as she continued to battle pneumonia. She also hemorrhaged during that C-section. Christmas, December 25, 2021, Yvette was taken to the emergency room. She was admitted to the hospital due to pneumonia, renal failure, and dangerously low hemoglobin levels. And at this point, she contracted covid during her hospitalization. December 29, 2021, Yvette went into respiratory arrest. Both lungs collapsed. December 31st, 2021, another respiratory arrest. Intubated and put on a ventilator. Put on a feeding tube and has been on that feeding tube ever since. She has had not one bite of food since December. She wasn't permitted to have a single drop of water from December on until June 22nd, where she was permitted to have five ice chips per day. And after that episode, doctors said she wouldn't survive the night. She did. December, pardon me, January 22nd, 2022, Yvette takes a turn for the worse and goes into cardiac and respiratory arrest. She was rushed to ICU, reintubated, and put on a ventilator a second time. Doctors said to prepare for the worse as her heart and lungs were too weak to survive re-intubation. She survived. January 28, 2022, Yvette was still not doing well. Even with intubation and a ventilator, her lungs couldn't function on their own. There was no option remaining other than to go on a more complex um, su- life support system called a lung bypass machine, abbreviated ECMO, ECMO, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation machine. And I understand to be attached to ECMO is a dangerous, dangerous surgical procedure. And doctors once more were concerned she didn't have the strength to survive that procedure. She did. As a COVID patient, she has been on ECMO longer than any other COVID patient in the United States. And the hospital where she is is considered the most specialized ECMO center in the nation. She did not know that. She asked to be transferred there only knowing that that's where she was employed and it was a familiar environment to her and she wanted to be there not knowing that this was a highly specialized treatment center for people who were on that apparatus. She didn't know. God knew. Yvette was placed into a medically induced coma Her lungs were functioning at less than 20% capacity. February 7, 2022, due to high-risk infection, Yvette was extubated and given a a tracheostomy. She was still sedated and unconscious. February 18, 2022, an electrocardiogram revealed extensive damage to the heart's right ventricle. March 30, 2022, Yvette became septic because of another infection. May 16, 2022, Yvette had a procedure called a thoracotomy to remove a massive blood clot from her lung. Chest tubes were inserted into her lungs to drain the blood from her lungs. 
May 29, 2022, Yvette was permitted to see her daughters for the first time in 156 days. I understand Yvette had not, had not seen or touched her newborn briar until that moment. She fed her for the first time. Doctors have said from earlier on that Yvette would need a double lung transplant. If that is to be the case, Yvette has fully accepted that as a part of God's plan. But to become eligible to become a transplant recipient, she must be able to walk a thousand feet. That is a requirement. So that is the most immediate objective. She is now sitting up and standing every day with assistance. And when she stands or sits, she has 10 tubes protruding from different parts of her body. She has virtually no muscle control. She is just now, after these months, able to move her hands. Her legs and core, though, are starting to get stronger. There have been serious setbacks, such as she has had to battle numerous infections, anxiousness, depression, and pain. At one point, all her toes and fingers turned black because of a lack of oxygen. Doctors were concerned she would lose them. But after much prayer, each of her digits have recovered, other than losing the tip of her right thumb, and she's about to lose the tip of her right index finger. And through it all, God's grace has been sufficient, and Yvette has remained determined and strong. Her attitude has been, it's okay, Mom, they're just fingertips. Yvette must relearn to do all the things we never give a second thought, brushing teeth, writing, talking, eating, chewing, swallowing, and so much more. This past week, the doctors determined Yvette's right ventricle is so severely damaged, it won't recover. Doctors announced she will need both a heart and double lung transplant. A heart and double lung transplant. The paperwork has been sent to UCLA to review in hopes that as soon as Yvette can walk that 1,000 steps or feet, she will be accepted and placed on a donor list. As of this morning, Yvette has been hospitalized and in ICU for 204 consecutive days. She has been on ECMO 173 days. She has battled 14 different infections, collapsed lungs, blood clots in those lungs, and enlarged heart. She has been intubated, extubated, reintubated. She has had a tracheoscopy. She has been on a ventilator multiple times. She has been sedated, paralyzed, put into a medically induced coma. She has had over 200 x-rays, more than 100 other scans. She remains on the ECMO machine 24-7. She cannot be removed from that machine or or she would die in minutes, and she will remain on that machine until she's in the operating room to receive those transplants. And there's so much more. And what I have shared is just the tip of the iceberg. The information we have received throughout this incredible ordeal has been from her mother, Zulema. And in fact, she's been faithful to contact Barbara, and I know Barbara and her sisters have been praying, and Barbara would share that information, and then I've been exchanging texts with Zulema, and uh, Zulema's attitude throughout this entire ordeal has been above anything I have ever witnessed. She is grateful for the slightest, slightest improvement.
She has complete trust and absolute confidence in God for Yvette's healing. Someone said how we respond during a crisis reveals just who we are and reveals just what we're made of. If that is true, and it is, then I would suggest Zulema's spiritual strength and stamina is above mine. She said this in a text, a recent text. She said, we continue our journey worshiping and praising our Lord for never letting go of her. I still don't know why God has chosen Yvette to go through this journey, but I truly believe it's for something big. And I'm believing the same. This is a picture of Yvette pre-COVID in her hospital attire. This is another pre-COVID Yvette. This is Yvette in a medically induced coma. This is Yvette on the ECMO machine and she is unconscious there. This is Yvette relearning to sit up and notice the assistance that is required to help her do that. This is Yvette relearning to stand. And this is Yvette relearning to swallow. This is Yvette seeing her children for the first time. And from left to right, this is Ed and Zulema, her parents, Yvette, her daughters, and her husband, Tim. The two practical lessons for us from Yvette, one is the next time we're tempted to complain about anything, stop and consider all that Yvette is enduring. Stop and pray for Yvette and then cancel your pity party. Second, learn to be grateful for even those small things that most of us take for granted. The person in this room that has the least it still has so much. God has blessed all of us and we need to be thankful. Don't forget to remember. Don't forget to remember to be grateful. Let's bow our heads. Our worship team is going to come, but I want us to have prayer, especially for Yvette. Father in heaven, I would confess to you my sin of ungratefulness. I am not as consistent in my gratitude as I should be, and I admit that. God, help me to change. I don't understand all that has happened and why all that has happened to Yvette. On the surface, it seems nonsensical. She has so much to live for. She has a career in nursing, caring for people. She is a mother of two small daughters. And it doesn't make sense to us. So I don't understand. But I trust that you are sovereign and you have a plan for her that maybe at this moment we don't understand. But God, I am grateful. I'm grateful that Yvette is still here. I'm grateful that she has the medical team she has to care for her. I'm so grateful that she is resolved to never, ever give up. And Father, I know the doctors and those nurses that are helping are doing everything humanly possible, but they can only do so much. I pray, God, that you would do what they cannot do and that you would begin to restore her health. And if there must be transplants, Father, I pray that, that you will help her take that first step. I understand now she can just shuffle her feet. She cannot and has not at this moment taken an actual step. I pray that will happen soon. 
And then, Father, after one step, two steps, three steps toward that 1,000 steps in 1,000 feet, Father, I just ask that you finish what you started. You are Jehovah Jireh, pardon me, Jehovah Rapha. Jehovah Rapha in Hebrew means you are the God who heals. And we believe you. And we believe you for that, for Yvette. And as she is fighting this fight, God, I pray for her parents, Ed and Zulema. I pray for her daughters. I pray for her husband, Tim. I pray that you will give them hope, encourage them daily, that their daughter someday will leave that hospital, return to her family, and be the influence that she wants to be to others. There's no doubt in my mind she will glorify you for this healing. I know she'll praise you. There's no, no question. God, I just pray for that entire family and of that in particular. I thank you for the privilege of knowing her and her parents and the blessing they've been to me. And I pray, God, now you would wrap your arms around them with your love and your care. And I ask it all in the special name of your son, Jesus. Amen.